0: The locations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, and the Tanaino and Nez Perce peoples. You have to know what to look for to find one of Oregon's most iconic conifers. It's most common in the distinctly unforested, dry, and rocky landscape of Wheeler County near the center of the state. On the hills around the county seat, you'll see junipers, which are close relatives, but you have to actually climb one of these hills to find the plant itself. The name of the county seat, Fossil, gives a hint as to where to look for this conifer's distinctive needles. The plant in question doesn't live here anymore, but remains of it are abundant in the rocks above the high school football stadium, one of the few sites in this fossil rich part of the Northwest where you can excavate specimens yourself. If you do, you're almost certain to find the characteristic flattened needles of Oregon's state fossil, Metasequoia, the dawn redwood. As you split flat pieces of rock, you're likely to find remains of several plant species, which collectively make up what's known to paleontologists as the Bridge Creek flora. These plants lived 33 million years ago, right at the boundary of the Eocene and Oligocene epochs. Central Oregon was a warmer and wetter place at this time, comparable to southern Appalachia today. We know this from the fossils of the Bridge Creek flora themselves, many of which are closely related to living species from the southeast U.S. and parts of China. We also know it from paleosols, or fossil soils, the bright colors of which gave the painted hills to the south their name, and which are indicators of temperate forests. These reasonably warm, reasonably wet forests seem to have been an ideal environment for metasequoia, and the Eocene-Oligocene boundary marks the beginning of a golden age for the dawn redwood in this part of Oregon. But conditions weren't always so favorable for this and other conifers, and you don't have to travel very far from fossil to find clear evidence of just how much changing climates can impact plant diversity. The Clarno unit of John Day Fossil Beds National Monument is one of the best places in the whole region to find fossils from earlier in the Eocene. 44 million years ago, a series of volcanic mudflows known as lahars buried a forest and built the palisade-like cliffs that sit north of the Shaniko fossil highway. The plants found here look very different from those found just down the road. There are a few conifers, notably pine and yew, but no metasequoia. There are also fossils of the conifer cousins known as cycads, but the flora is dominated by broad-leafed flowering plants that would look at home in parts of Mexico or Central America today. These include bananas, palms, and even avocados. As you may recall from the episode on Puget Lowland Forests, the needles of conifers are great at reducing water loss, which also means that water moves more slowly from roots to leaves, making them less susceptible to the dangers of freezing. This is why you'd expect conifers to do especially well in cold, dry environments, but in a warm, wet world such as that of Eocene, Oregon, it's flowering plants that tend to thrive. As we've already seen, in 11 million years the climate in the area around fossil would cool considerably, opening the door for plants like metasequoia. But even in the midst of the Eocene greenhouse, you could still find colder conditions by heading up. And sure enough, if you head to the higher elevations of the Okanagan highlands of Washington and British Columbia, You'll find abundant fossils of dawn redwood and other conifers that date to the same period of time as the Clarno jungles. Heading back through fossil and towards the sheep rock unit of John Day fossil beds, you're also heading forward in time and returning to the golden age of Metasequoia in central Oregon. The Bridge Creek flora has been uncovered at several outcrops of the John Day formation in the area. Continuing south, You'll pass the younger units of this formation, which form towering blue-green badlands famous for their mammal fossils. The John Day Formation records a vast period of time well over 10 million years, spanning the entire Oligocene and the earliest part of the next epoch, the Miocene. In places, and in particular from an overlook near the town of Dayville, you can see the paler rocks of the Maskell Formation, which dates to the middle of the Miocene, 15 million years ago and records the dawn redwoods' last moment in the Oregon sun. The Mid-Miocene, while nowhere near as sweltering as the Eocene, was a period of global warming, likely caused by carbon dioxide released by the massive eruptions that formed the Columbia River basalts, and gave most of the inland northwest its bedrock. It got warm enough that cypress, a conifer that's at home in the swamps of the Okefenokee and Everglades today, grew in the area around Dayville. You can also find metasequoia in deposits throughout the Northwest dating to this time, including the Maskell and the spectacular fossil beds of Clarkia, Idaho. Soon after this, though, it disappears from the region, and indeed from most of its range across the globe. Dawn redwoods weren't the only trees to suffer setbacks in the Miocene. You can see the environmental trend quite clearly in the fossils and murals at John Day Fossil Beds, Thomas Condon Paleontology Center. Well adapted for cold, darkness, and drought as conifers may be, even they can only take so much cooling and drying. And cooling and drying was the order of the day in the Oligocene and Miocene. The main culprit behind this steady decrease in temperature was the current that formed around Antarctica in the Oligocene, turning the South Pole into a giant refrigerator coil. As central Oregon got colder and drier along with most of the rest of the world, the Bridge Creek forests gave way to savannas in the later Oligocene. The global warming of the Mid-Miocene would not last, and Dayville's cypress swamps were soon gone, and by the time the Rattlesnake Formation, the youngest of the fossil-bearing units in the monument, was deposited 7 million years ago, this part of the Northwest was covered in what was, at the time, a new type of ecosystem. Grasslands. Grasses are extremely efficient both at water use and at sequestering the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide, meaning that not only were they the major beneficiary of a cold and dry climate, but they played a major role in making that climate cold in the first place. Metasequoia, however, did not fare so well in this chilly new world. For a long time, it was thought that not only did Don Redwoods disappear from Oregon, but that Miocene climate change told the death knell for all Metasequoia everywhere. Then, in the 1940s, the entirely unexpected happened. A species of dawn redwood was found, alive and well, in China's Hubei province. This means that metasequoia was one of the very few living organisms to be first described as a fossil. It's also become a very popular decorative tree, and it can be found reliably in parks, arboretums, and gardens around the world. Fittingly, One of the most impressive specimens grows next to the buildings housing the geology department, including the paleontology program, at Eugene's University of Oregon. Wherever they grow, dawn redwoods are a botanical window into the past, and a visit to John Day fossil beds is as close to a trip through time as any of us are realistically likely to take. You don't need a time machine to see how climate still affects conifer biology and diversity, though. A trip up the Blue Mountains, the ancient series of ranges that runs from the John Day region northeast to the point where Washington, Oregon, and Idaho meet, illustrates this just as clearly as the area's fossils. If you spent time at high elevations, you know that oxygen is scarcer, the result of lower air pressure. This same low air pressure leads to colder temperatures and to the condensation of moisture in the air, forcing much of that moisture to fall as rain or snow. This is why most of the inland northwest is so dry. The huge north south wall formed by the Cascades brings most moisture out of the air as it moves from west to east. It's also why vegetation changes so remarkably as you move up the Blue Mountains, from river carved lowlands such as the John Day Valley or the even more spectacular Hell's Canyon on the Snake River. If you approach the John Day area from the west, as most visitors do, you'll notice this change as you cross the Ochigo or Butte Creek summits. If you really want to appreciate the full range of climates and conifers in the Blue Mountains, though, head east from John Day Fossil Beds, towards the distant Wallawas, the highest of the ranges that make up the mountain chain. You won't see a great diversity of conifers in the John Day Valley, a low-elevation landscape dominated by grasses and sagebrush, and even more drought-tolerant plants. The one conifer, in fact the one tree of any kind you'll see in large numbers, is the western juniper. A not-too-distant relative of metasequoia, junipers have several adaptations that make them much better able to survive in a desert-like environment. As adults, their stomata, the microscopic holes through which carbon dioxide enters the plant but through which water can escape, are shielded from the sun, minimizing evaporation. They can alter the number of male and female cones they produce, maximizing seed production in wet years and pollen production in dry ones. Most importantly, they have a huge deep root system that lets them tap into water sources far below the soil surface. Despite all these adaptations, they still require the shade of dense stands of sagebrush early in life. At two points, the road to the Wallowas heads uphill into a climate zone more favorable for other conifer species. You enter true forests on the road to Larch Summit, though while thinner air here leads to cooler temperatures and more precipitation, this is still a warmer, drier environment than most northwest conifers have to deal with. If you listened to the previous episode, you know that Douglas firs preferred sunny conditions, and won't be surprised to learn that they're common in these forests. Even better at surviving here is the quintessential conifer of the inland northwest, the Ponderosa pine whose extremely thin needles and closable stomata are likely adaptations to conserving water in a drought prone environment. After crossing Larch Summit, the road descends to the valleys of the Powder and Grand Ron Rivers, before circling around to the base of the Wallawas, home of the highest peaks in the Blue Mountains. Though there's some debate over which is actually the tallest. Here, and at other high altitude areas nearby, you'll find the coolest temperatures, the wettest climates, and the densest forests in the Blue Mountains. With species like grand fir, engelman spruce, and mountain hemlock, many of these forests look like they'd be more at home on the damp, western side of the Cascades. The fact that they can survive here, on what amounts to islands in an ocean of grass and sagebrush, is a testament to the powerful role of climate in determining where conifers live, and in shaping the tapestry of forest ecosystems across the northwest. Many of these high-elevation forests are fairly remote and are most easily reached by trail, but in one place you can soar over them. The town of Joseph, Oregon, and neighboring Wallawa Lake, sit at a fairly low elevation where conifers are notably scarce on the ground. Climb into one of the gondolas of the Wallawa Lake tramway, though, and the slopes below you become covered in thick forest very quickly. Until, that is, you reach the top of the tramway. The upper station still sits well below the highest nearby peaks, but right at the tree line, the point at which forests disappear, replaced mostly by small, flowering plants. In the winter, these exposed environments are among the coldest and most punishing of any in the northwest. Summers can be equally demanding, particularly for forests further downslope that are subject to forest fires. And yet, some species of conifer survive in the icy meadows above tree line. And others thrive in the forest hardest hit by fires. To explore the adaptations that make survival possible in such extreme conditions, next week we'll head to the extremes of the Northwest itself as we visit the Rocky Mountains that mark the region's eastern edge